Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. All right, Father in heaven, thank you so much. Man, I think about all the circumstances and all the ins and outs and the traveling and the, the, the busy schedules and our, and our, our agendas. God, and, and I see a, a miracle right here today that this place has people. This class has attendees. I, I don't take that lightly. I take this as a miracle, like loaves and, loaves and fishes miracle. Because how many things are threatening our study of the Word? Millions of things in a week. And the fact that we're here tells me that, yes, you are, in fact, still moving. You are still in control. And may, maybe just today, as we look at chapter 10, I pray that you would, would sear that in our hearts, that you, the God of the universe, the Creator, the Mighty One, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, still are in control. And we give you this time in this study, in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, oh man, it's it's going to be a good one today, I hope. Well, I'm going to just lay it out there and let you guys decide. Uh, but today, chapter 10, I just wanted to give uh, a, a real quick thanks for Justin to leading the path, leading the pack of wolves last week. And uh, if you haven't caught that podcast or that uh, that YouTube video, go check that out so you can get caught up to chapter 10. Today, we're going to open our Bibles to chapter 10, verse 1. Nice and clean and neat. And in chapter 10, God begins, he's, he's starting to prepare Peter's heart. You guys know all about Peter by now, I hope. But he didn't have a particularly liking to the Gentile nation. He didn't really like those folks. And God says, oh yeah? Well, I got another plan for you. I'm going to start softening your heart. And as we learned last week, the responsibility for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles ends up to be square on Paul's shoulders. So Luke takes a break and takes a left-hand turn to go back to see what's happening with Peter. Because you remember, he has one more key. He has the third key that will be opening up the gospel, the kingdom of God, to the Gentiles. And so this is where we do this. This is where this happens. So I'm super excited because you all wouldn't be believers in Jesus if it wasn't for this moment recorded in history in the book of Acts by our, our friend Luke. Yet Peter's willingness to reach out to the Gentiles was critically important, and it had to happen. It had to. So what are we going to do? What's going to happen? How is this going to unfold? It's kind of like a soap opera. Like, What's Johnny going to do? You know, what's the plot? The plot thickens. So Peter holds this key to, in, uh, to the kingdom. You guys remember Matthew 16, 19 is where I get this narrative of the keys to the kingdom. So make sure you, you, you reference that. When you're saying things like, oh, the keys of the kingdom, 
This isn't just a thing that I came up with as a cutesy thing. Jesus said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And that's exactly in Matthew 16, 19, what he did. So bringing Peter to an awareness of God's plan for these Gentile churches in the Gentile nation had to happen. And in chapters 10 through 11, we see how Peter's heart is cracked wide open like a pop can by the hand of God, receiving the Gentiles as converts once and for all. Somebody get their narrating voice on and nice and loud, verse 1 through 8. Go ahead. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring a man, uh, bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Great. So we're in this in this narrative of this man named Cornelius. He's from what town? Right, Caesarea. There is a place called Caesarea, and I'm going to show you guys some maps. He was a Roman centurion. Anybody know what a centurion is? He's a really, really high-up official guard of the Roman Empire. He was the, in the army, and it means that he was in charge of a lot of men. Um, you know, where we get the word century, it's a hundred. So he had a hundred subordinates that if any of those hundred men did something wrong, it was his fault. You see what I'm saying? So we're talking about a high up leader in the Roman empire. So Cornelius, as we learned last week, was this guy, thanks Justin. He was a devout man. Did you guys find that odd? That the, that the author, Luke, gives us a narrative of exactly what kind of man this guy was. He was devout man, but his religious devotion was directed towards the gods of Rome? No. How weird is this? Do you know any Rome, if you were in Rome, this would be odd to you, to have a Roman official actually fear and worship a monotheistic deity? That doesn't happen. Remember the Pantheon? There's literally hundreds of gods. Here we have this man that's a Gentile, and all his family members, his grandpas, grandmas, his, his lineage had worshipped Diana. They've worshipped Greek gods for thousands of years. The Pantheon knew all the mythology. He was sung songs. He was taught stories as, little, as a little boy. Yet here he is going... That's all hogwash. I, I want to I wanna know more about this Yahweh character. So Cornelius begins to give alms. Did you guys learn that? Did you guys go through, over that last week? I can't remember. But giving alms was a religious donation to the Jewish people. And he prayed to the Lord continually. 
Don't you find that interesting? Continually praying. How about you guys? How's that going for you? You, How do you stack up with our man Cornelius? I'm telling you, man, like I, I remember, what was it? C.S. Lewis said, I, I never pray for more than 30 seconds, but I don't go 30 seconds without praying, you know? And it's just a totally interesting thing to see that Luke mentions that Cornelius was a man of prayer. Very interesting. Make a note of that. This pattern of worshiping the true God with a limited understanding is significant. Don't you think? Yes. I think that. Thank you, Larry. I think this is absolutely a little bit odd. And honestly, what has he got to go off of? What does he have? God's handiwork, maybe? I don't know. Paul himself teaches about this kind of spontaneous response to, to God in Romans 2. Check this out. Romans 2, verse 14 through 15, it says this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately alternately accusing of or else defending them. Sorry. So what I'm saying, in what he's saying in Rome in Romans, is Paul is describing the way God will step into our lives of His elect. He will step in there and bring faith. He brings faith. Wait a minute. That's a little odd. Sometimes we've taught a different message, aren't we? Sometimes without any direct connection to human revelation. Do you know what I mean by that? God can do what God can do when He wants to do it, with or without human agency. Do you believe that? I, I do. We have evidence here. Where did such a person as Cornelius, as a Gentile, get such a desire and understanding to live in a godly way, much less pull out his wallet and give his treasure? What? What's happening? Paul says the law of God had been written on his heart. Remember the promise of the new covenant? Check this out. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is, this is a promise that was said to Jeremiah before the new covenant. We're talking OT here. It says this, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. I love that. I will write it, he said. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Jesus fulfilled all of that, didn't he? In other words, the way the occasional Gentile becomes a follower of the living God is no different than the way all men and women, you and me combined, Come to that place today. The Lord reveals Himself to our hearts by His Spirit. It's a supernatural process, not needing a human agent. A priest, hello, we don't need a priest to save us. We have one, Jesus. 
But once the Lord makes that change, it will drive us to the bars? No. <laughs> it will drive us crazy? No. It will drive us to seek God in a new and earnest way. I'm not saying this out of experience. I see proof in the scriptures, but I, but then I, I'm, I'm speaking out of experience. Because that happened to me. Why would I even care about this stuff? Why would you be here? Can I ask a potent question? That's a pretty potent question. Why are you here? Think about it. There has to be something in you that deeply, earnestly desires God. Am I right? He changes your want-tos. You've got a different want-to is a good way of saying it. For Cornelius, it was through alms and prayer, and then God transitioned from a supernatural revelation of himself to a reliance on human agency to transfer that knowledge. Think about that. So what we actually see here is evidence that he's been working in the background without any need for these human, human hands, human voices, human brains, didn't need a pastor, didn't need a priest, didn't need a church. But now, he invites a human into the dance. Always under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's the way this always works. Still today. For us, it's still the same way. Our faith moment is a supernatural work of God to write law, His new law, upon our hearts. You don't do it. I don't know when I went to the altar, you know, I didn't I didn't actually have an altar experience, but when I see other people come forward to accept Christ as as their Lord and Savior, I don't see anybody writing anything with a pen. Yet in the supernatural, scripture indicates that there is a law, a new law, a new rule in the house, a new driver, a new operating system being written upon the heart of that human our faith moment is supernatural. Do you guys believe that, by the way? I mean, I can sit there and listen to some pastor tell me that stuff. And I have before, you know. But it's, it was recently, like in the last 10 years, I would say, where I actually, now I look at you guys. Now I, I'm assuming most of you guys are Christians and you're listening. Y'all are believers. Otherwise, I don't know why you'd be here. Uh, but... You guys are miracles. I mean, that's, I'm not. I'm not saying some like a little, like uh, positive, positive uh, speaker. You know, like inspirational speaker here. You guys are all miracles. Now, yeah, you know, pat yourself on the back. What I'm saying is, y'all are miracles. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference. You shouldn't be here, yet you are. You shouldn't be saved, yet he said you are. You didn't do anything, but he did. You see, that's the gospel message. Cornelius didn't earn this. He wasn't of the right bloodline, guys. He had everything going against him. He's probably killed some people. He's a soldier. You know, he's just doing orders. So, guys, I, I mean, I do have this. I do have the, oh, I'll get to this later. I do have this really crazy, uh, really quick story. Anybody know a Masonic Jew? Human oh, person. No. Masonic Jew. When I say Masonic Jew, I'm talking about a completed Jew. 
It's a Jewish, uh, a person of the remnant, his Jewish lineage, uh, that practiced Judaism, raised in rabbinical law, that has a moment of reconciliation with Jesus Christ. And they place their faith in Jesus Christ. More accurately, they get saved. That's what I call a completed Jew. Because when I find these people and I become friends with these people, which I have in the past, they have, you guys got to, you guys got to take them out for coffee. Because ask them their testimony. It is incredible. So this one young man that I knew uh, went to a healing service. I used to be in the Pentecostal charismatic world. Not anymore. But what we had was a friendship. So his friend needed a prayer. So he went to this healing service. The healing service came and went. Men prayed for him. It's great. Didn't get healed, you know. But it was a great service. Very biblical. I mean, it was very appropriate. We left then. Uh, and he calls me the next day and goes, can I get a Bible? And I was like, sweet, dude. Like, yeah. I mean, he goes to synagogue every single week right here in town. And he he began to say, I got serious hunger for what you've been saying. I got some serious, weird stuff going on. I'm falling apart. My life's in a, in a mess. I don't understand. Everything those people said to me as a kid, I didn't believe it anyway. I didn't understand it. I don't even get it. But all of a sudden, I need to find out. You see? So we started, we, he started researching, started looking at the Bible, started reading the New Testament for the first time. And he just came to the realization on his own, through faith in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ is the, mesh, the, the I want to say it in Hebrew, but Messiah. Not just the his Messiah. Cornelius is just like my friend. He didn't have to have some pastor talk him into it. It's time, God said. It's time. It's time for you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes we associate discipleship, and this is a little tangent, discipleship and growth to a weekly gathering at a building with our brothers and sisters. Am I right? I do. <clears throat> I've been taught that most of my life. But here we see something different. When the time was right, the Lord sent an angel to Cornelius so that he would come to know Peter and understand and receive the full testimony of the gospel. He's told to go find this guy named Simon. Simon the Tanner. What I'm trying to get at is, guys, let's open up our mind for a second, that discipleship and growth does not equate going to a meeting once a week. Hello. I mean, that's that's an easy thing to say yes to, but isn't that kind of like what we kind of sum it up as? Like, well, we just need to go. We just need to go to church. It's a commitment. That's great. But it is not the sum total of discipleship and growth. So Cornelius, here's, here's and I'm sorry, not Cornelius, Simon the Tanner. Where did he live? Well, here's the Near East, uh, 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 Mediterranean Sea. This is Israel. And right here is the house of Simon the Tanner in Google Maps right now. Uh, you can actually look it up, House of Simon the Tanner. 
<laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, he's his cousin lives there now. Yeah, they have all these. Yeah, yeah, donkeys and camels. Yeah, uh, they had zip codes back then. Uh, but he told he was told he was told to go here. Peter was told to go here. Simon was told to go here. I'm sorry, Cornelius. What am I talking about? Cornelius was told to go to this man named Simon. So when God said to go do something, he actually used first person names. He wasn't go, hey, go find some some guy with red hair. He's like, go to, to this man named Simon, probably because of Cornelius' affinity for Jews and his, his identification of their gods with his people, of their God with their people. He knew who Simon Peter was, and he had to get to him. So this, this angel says, go find Simon. And based on the angel's instructions, Cornelius moves quickly to comply. Now, can I go uh, real quick? I'm going back and forth here a little bit, but ride, ride this wave for a second. If you go to the bank every day, will you get rich? I mean, if you hold the place up for hostage and take a couple hostages and shove the money in your pocket, maybe. But if you just go to the bank every single week, does it make you rich? No. Is it going to increase your checking account? No. This is what I want you guys to see what happens next. You'll get this. It, going to church is like going to the bank every week, expecting your checking account to increase when you do not do any transactions. Now, what, what's happening here is the, the idea of discipleship and growth. So with that, let's go ahead and see, somebody read chapter 10, verse 9 through 16. This is crazy. Somebody read it. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the cities, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, about noon, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheep descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. <laughs> and the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Thanks, man. You guys remember this this story from uh, your Sunday school lessons with the felt boards and everything back in the Sunday school era? Man, I remember this being wackadoodle, as they say. I'm going, wait, what? As a kid, some sheet is holding up some animals coming out of the Sky? What's happening? I had no idea. Well, I hope you guys can look at these and appreciate the artist. It's not exactly what happened, but it's somewhere close. Now, if you can kind of imagine, this is the modern day. This is a modern, uh, back in the 1800s, a picture of Tanner's, the Tanner's house. Simon the Tanner's actual house. 
This is a cistern that actually was filled with waves. When the waves would crash against the Mediterranean Sea, would crash into his house, it would fill up his cistern. He would need this well to wash the blood out of the animals. Jewish people don't touch blood, and much less pigs. Whoa. I mean, you you are not a you are not a citizen anymore. I mean, you would be having to you'd, you have to spend a lot of time in those mikvahs to make yourself clean again in their eyes. But this is an actual authentic picture from a hundred years ago. This is the actual site today of Tan, uh, Tan, Simon the Tanner's house, and it's not it's this has been built in the uh, Byzant the Byzantine era, but its its foundations are still under here. But this is kind of what it would look like. A house back then had a rooftop that was a private quarter where social things can happen for private parties. Every house had it. It was super hot, needed to have some circulation. So everybody used to go hang out on the roof. Well, Peter goes and does what he's told and goes to Simon, P Simon the Tanner's house, reluctant because there's dead animals hanging all over the place. It looked like a meat locker, guys. You've ever been to a meat packing plant? This is a modern, uh, an ancient meat packing plant. Blood, guts. I mean, I don't want to get gross, but this is the antithesis of a Hebrew's best day. This is like I'm going into Hades. So here we go, having this, this, you know, he's trying, in my opinion, I, I'm filling in the blanks. He wanted to get out of there and go out and get some air. I mean, he's up on the rooftop, right? So this rooftop is actually facing the sky exactly where Peter would be standing, and this sky would have been where this happened, approximately, right? Well, this is what happens. On the second day at noon, sixth hour, Peter goes to the rooftop to pray, um, it, and while he was praying, the text says that he becomes hungry. Guess what? Blue letter Bible time. You looked up blue letter. Uh, if you look up the Greeks, uh, the the Greek uh, re reference to the lexicon for the Greek phrasing of e extremely hungry, this is not. Oh, my stomach's growling. There's only one time in the Bible that this word hungry is used, and it's in Acts ten ten, and this Greek phrase, this hunger word, is the word for excruciating painful hunger that it swept over him like a, like a rage like he couldn't handle it anymore he could have ate a rock he was so hungry god appears to have created this strong sensation of hunger inside of peter and it catches his attention and with the power of suggestion i might add he gets peter's attention and launches him into a trance from heaven, a large sail or sheet, literally in the Greek it says linen cloth, it's not cotton, it's linen, held up by four corners, begins to descend out of the sky, and it's filled with all the animals that he hates, that he doesn't touch, never. It wasn't lions and tigers and bears, oh my. We're talking about pigs uh, all of the all of the unclean animals that crawl around on the ground, 
We're, I mean, we're talking about all of the, the dietary restrictions that he's been programmed for his entire life to steer clear from, or he will die, are in this blanket. And it's coming out of the sky. Inside the sheet are all those four-footed animals with hooves. That's basically what it is. Notably, the sheet may have held many types of animals that were not lawful in the Mosaic Law. But Peter felt great hunger. But not enough. What did Peter say to God? The two words, if I had a whiteboard, I'd write this out. Never, ever say those two words in conjunction with each other to God. No, Lord. <laughs> I'm just saying that's pretty stupid. You know what I mean? Yet, those two words have come out of his mouth with his friend Jesus prior to this. Do you remember? Yeah. Exactly. By no means, Lord. Heaven, hey, actually, God forbid it. You say, what? I mean, I want to, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, oh, no, you didn't. I mean, forget about it. Yet here he is. And in, in some scholars, uh, Spurgeon suggests that perhaps in the middle of that, that angelic trance, that he recognizes the voice of his friend Jesus, and he becomes familiar enough to put his guard down for him to say, no way, man, because it's his homie, as some people would say. It's his friend. He's an acquaintance. And he let down his guard, and he says, no, Lord, He's starving to the point of anguish, yet he's not going to break the Mosaic law. You see that religion there? You see that? The two words that he said are self-contradictory. Peter is behaving in a pattern, pattern similar to what he did before. When he heard that Jesus would die, he declared, God forbid it, Lord. Isn't that a funny word? God forbid it, Lord. He then says he has never eaten anything that wasn't kosher and killed properly. Let me give you guys a little Jewish background. This is why I love Jewish history literature. I go into a deep dive about how things are processed as a Jew. And the Jewish dietary laws required that only certain kinds of animals could be, ever, ever be eaten. And even those must be killed in a specific way that removes the blood. Do you guys know Hebrew national hot dogs? You guys like those? You guys know uh, that those are those are kosher hot dogs, and that they have twenty three rabbis that process the cow on the meat packing plant that are rabbis, Jewish rabbis in Tyvek suits, and they slice they slice the cow's throat with a with a like a three foot blade, and this is the ancient Jewish Mosaic law method methodology. And the, the side humor is that they're losing all this money, right? Because of all the payroll of all the, the, the rabbis. Well, they actually get rid of half the animal, the back half, you know, where all the stuff happens. They can't eat that side. So another company comes and grabs the back end of the animal and makes other hot dogs. So it was this this great business transaction, but the Jewish law requires never eat that side of the animal. I could go on and on, but this is still happening today. 
So this isn't weird. This is normal. But see, if Peter is thinking like that, can you imagine how offensive this is? Kill Peter and eat. How am I going to do that? Notably, he felt this great hunger and says no. And he says, God forbid it. He then says he has never eaten anything. The Jewish people would be appalled. And the animal can't be killed in a common way, which was back then strangling them. Did you know that? They didn't really have guns. They didn't, I mean, they weren't just going to slice them. They actually strangled the animal with their hands. Because if there was any blood, they had to throw the animal away. So God's response to Peter is that Peter shouldn't consider, and here's our application, should not consider something unclean if God has cleansed it. And in the case of dietary restrictions of the law, there were no longer any of those in effect because the law no longer held authority over those who've received the Messiah. Did Peter receive the Messiah? Yes. So God says, you can drop that now. Furthermore, God is teaching a principle to, te to Peter. We follow God where God goes. Amen? When God goes, we go. Where He goes, I go. Did Jesus say, hey, I'm going to just go do my own thing? No, He said, what my Father says for me to do, I do. And as God changes His expectations and purposes, we are obliged to change with Him. The dietary rules came at a point in a time for a specific purpose. Once those purposes have been met, then God will remove those restrictions. And this is Paul's essential argument in Galatians. You guys, this is a big deal, so I don't want to move over this. This is a monster mountain for people to get over. We have entire city, the city of Omaha, for example, is lynched, I mean, just completely consumed with this idea, the ideology of which laws are still in effect? Hmm. Well, I like these ones, but I don't like these ones, so we're just going to stick with these. For example, let's read Galatians 3.17. It says this, Paul says this, what I am saying is this, I love that, what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not in, uh, invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Big deal. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels, by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made, Jesus. Now the mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But... The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But because, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith 
which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under or in need of a tutor. The ultimate purpose in this passage to Peter was to create a willingness to him for him to preach the gospel to Gentiles. The previously unclean nations of pagans, those animals in that blanket, were about to become children of God by faith. Despite the clear message of Peter's resistance, the by the way, did you notice the whole conversation is re repeated three times? Hello, does that ring a bell? Peter, Jesus, three times. Hmm, coincidence? I think not. Can you imagine denying God's command in a personal conversation? I can't even, I can't even fathom that. I mean, one commentator, I mean, I it, to me, suggests when I read this, com uh, this, this uh, commentary, it was like, it's me. I mean, it's, it's me. When I get lackadaisical with my homeboy, Jesus, do you see where there's a trap there? Of almost becoming so passive that what he says to me when he's the king, when he's the Messiah, when he's the Lord of Lords and the ruler of the universe, creator of the universe, and I'm treating him like my homie, there's a little bit of a risk there for me not to even listen to him when he talks. I'm just being honest. Like, I was told that he was just like this, this uh, kind of like this hippie leader floating through the countryside in a gown. And what I had to realize is that he is the Messiah who literally sustains our very breath. So when he speaks, I'm going to do it. Now here Peter kind of backs off and goes, eh, whatever. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to break my covenants. Jesus asked Peter if he loved the Lord three times. You remember that? Which followed by Peter's denial of the Lord three times. So Peter has a history of stubbornness when it comes to listening to the Lord. What about you guys? Whew. Yeah. You got to hear it three times before you actually do it? I mean, I'd like to tell you that I don't. How many people in the room has ever had the Lord prompt you to do something and you just wrote it off as a bad burrito? Or you just said, hey, I'll do it next time. I don't want to look stupid. What do you think Peter's thinking right now? I, won't, I really don't want to look stupid. So let's move on. Verse 17 through 23. The Lord has made his point to Peter, guys. Let's read it. Somebody else read it, would you? 17 through 23. Now, Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius had asked directions to find his house, and they appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. <laughs> Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? 
They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So we invited them in and gave them lodging. So while Peter's is, is still staring out there on the sky, what's that, Larry? Oh, keep going. One more verse. Oh, now you're right. Sorry. Twenty-three. Now the next day he got up, he got ready, and went away from them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Thank you. Don't want to miss it. It's a verse by verse Bible study. We don't want to miss any verses. Peter. Right. Exactly. So we got Peter. He's looking at this this vision. Ding dong. The door rings. <laughs> the doorbell rings. There's two men sitting there, standing there. And Peter's going, oh, they're Romans. He's scared now. While he's still in this thinking about it stage, uh, I could probably put the pieces together that Simon's covering for him, saying, hey, I don't got anybody in here. There's nobody here. It's fine. I'm just the only one here. You know, like a typical like murder mystery kind of thing. Well, Peter gets this, this second vision from God, the Spirit tells Peter that there is a, there is, there are men downstairs that you need to go talk to, and he goes. He does do that. That's pretty cool. Since there were Roman soldiers, you got to ask yourself, how willing would I be? So Peter himself was directed to greet the men. So he goes. So this, I just have to mention that the Spirit has sent these men to Peter. So. Don't fear the intentions. You know, like, we, we need that. We need that. We need that realization. When God promises something, there goes the fear. That's the way our walk should be. Go with them without concerns. That's, that's the message. And you have to, to love the dedication to the Roman, to the mission of the Roman soldiers, guys. Like, this is, like, crazy. Caesarea is 35 miles south. So Caesarea Philippi is where Cornelius sent his servants to go find Tanner at Joppa. The Tanner at Joppa. So Peter's here. The Roman soldiers, the Roman folks, uh, knock on his door at Joppa. And now we know how far that is. When's the last time you walked 35 miles? It's pretty crazy. They deliver the precise message that Cornelius told them to give. Precise. Exactly. Luke makes sure that it's exact. Peter receives them and gives them lodging. Stay overnight. It's too late to head out there right now. They had arrived at the end of the second day's walk, and it was too far for them to set out to Caesarea until morning. They left the next morning, and six other Christians in Joppa goes with Peter. Kind of crazy, right? Well, what's that all about? We learned that number in Acts 11 coming up. A total of seven Jews witnesses the first Gentile conversion in just a little bit. This point in the book of Acts is a turning point for the Gentiles. Here the man with the keys to the kingdom is about to turn the key for the sake of the Gentiles, beginning with a Roman centurion. And to show how monumental this moment is for the church, let's just take a second. Just take a second in your brain. I'm not going to take a lot of time. Consider what it took to get here. Wait, what? What, 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 what? Peter brought to Joppa 
through a series of circumstances, an angel sent to Cornelius, a delegation coming to Peter's home, a voice from heaven to Peter, and the Holy Spirit coaching Peter to respond. Okay, so is God in control or not? I'd say he is. So, real quick, Caesarea, they entered Caesarea five years ago. I went to Israel, and uh, this is Caesarea Philippi. This little mound right here used to be uh, a vacation home for the Caesar. And uh, this is actually his back porch, if you will. The, the fortress was right here, his castle. And this is where he, he liked chariot racing. So he had a chariot uh, uh, auditorium that, that would actually do chariot races right here. And this is Caesarea. It was a vacation home for the elite. And so that's why Cornelius lived there. He was a Roman centurion. He was a big deal. But Caesarea Philippi is where you guys can say that the Gentile nations had the keys of the kingdom unlock the Gentiles' access to citizenship in, under Jesus' reign, now and forever. So I'm going to read this, uh, 24, Acts 10, 24 through 29. On the following day, he entered Caesarea, right here. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together in relatives, his relatives and close friends. You got the picture in your head? When Peter entered, came through the house front door, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled, and he said to them, right here to his family members, You yourself know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, Gentile, or to visit him in his house. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objections when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Do you feel the pressure? Cornelius' first reaction is to worship the one sent to him. Typical Roman, right? I mean, you're, they're used to worshiping humans all the, all the time. This is an under, this is de definitely understandable. He received a an instruction from an angel that must have been waiting for this encounter, had to just boil up with tremendous anticipation. I mean, I just would, I'd be bursting like, is he coming? Is he coming around the corner? I mean, he's looking through the window going, is that him? No, okay. Man, because, I mean, if I had an angel tell me a specific dude's name is coming to my house for the specific message that I'm supposed to listen to, I would be shaking in my boots. But Peter corrects him and, and reminds Cornelius that Peter's presence is his home, in his home, is a risk for being canceled. <laughs> Cancel culture? Yeah, right here. He would be totally canceled if anybody saw him. Because he's violating the religious rules of the Jewish people, he would be ostracized, kicked out of, the, of Israel. And Peter says he came without objection, so he's done his part. So what do, you, what, what do you got for me? So let's get on with this. That's literally what the phrasing says. It's not, so why would you send for me? It's, get on with it. Do you see that? 
He's not a nice guy. This is not a nice interaction. Get on with it, Gentile. The tone and sense of Peter's words suggest that he's not comfortable. And he's somewhere that he don't want to be. Despite his words to the contrary, the centurion responds like this. Like, he, sh he could have taken offense to that. Like, you dogs, you pigs, shouldn't even be here. What do, you, what do you want? What do you want from me? The centurion responds like this. Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me with shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before the Lord. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So he flipped the script, right? Yeah. He says, no, it's what, what do you have for me? Well, I don't have anything for you. What about you? You're supposed to have something for me. By his own words, Cornelius describes how the Lord spoke to him and instructed him to find Peter. It's like they met in the middle. Why are you here? I don't know. Why are you here? I don't know. Why are you here? He knew of God, this man, Cornelius, and knew that God of the Israel was the only true God, but he lacked the fulfillment of what he sought. That stuck out to me. He lacked something. He knew about God. Wasn't that enough? No. He knew there was something more. There was a piece missing. And he was ready and ready, ready and raring to go for that piece. So Peter responds with another version of his Pentecost and Sanhedrin speeches. Somebody please read 34 through 43, nice and loud. Coming around to the end, guys. <clears throat> Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. As for the word that he sent to Israel, speaking the good news of Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and his power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. God is with him. And we are witnesses of that uh, he did both in the country of the Jews and in Ethiopia. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, mm. but God raised him on the third day and made him appear. Not all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Praise the Lord. Yes. Thanks, Peter. Peter begins reminding himself <laughs> of what he's always known. If you ever get in a bind and you don't know what to say, just begin to remind yourself of the gospel. The language in Greek that he uses, but the phrase that the, the it's the language that he's using is in Greek, but the phrase is a direct translation of the Hebrew. In Deuteronomy, you guys should check that out. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says this, for the Lord, he's quoting this, for the Lord your God is the God of our God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, 
and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So it pops in his mind, and he says it in Hebrew. On the contrary, Peter affirms that God welcomes anyone who fears him, a.k.a. has faith, and accomplishes works of righteousness, giving evidence of that faith. Did you hear me, Al? On the, I mean, on, on my, in my purview, that's not a very clear message today. Let me just say that again. Peter affirms that God welcomes anyone who fears him, has faith, and accomplishes works of righteousness, giving evidence of that faith. Then Peter gives the presentation of the gospel to the Gentile. In his delivery of his message of hope, Peter uses his keys to open the kingdom to the Gentiles according to God's purpose and leading. Acts 10.44, listen to this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter, remember the six guys, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also. For there were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water from these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few more days. Let me just point out a pattern. We expect to see as a new category of believers receive this gospel. Even as Peter's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon all those who listen. Notice the effect extends beyond the Gentiles. Even those who were previously indwelled by the Spirit are responding in this moment. This, this fact means that the response is not a response of new faith in, to those six people. It's something altogether different. It's a special manifestation given by the Holy Spirit in this to mark the occasion. This is a big deal, guys. Isn't that what we've seen, the, the, the trend, the other two? The Jews understand the meaning of this sign. They can't mistake it. It wasn't a bad burrito. It's been seen twice before, first at Pentecost and then at the Samaritans. But now the Gentiles? It's something no Jew had ever imagined that could ever happen in the, in the history of mankind. And the moment comes complete with all the signs and wonders we've come to expect when the kingdom of God arrives for a new category of believers to be citizens. Finally, the Jewish observer has no choice but to accept what they've seen. They can't argue with what they see. Can you argue with evidence? You can't argue with somebody who's actually been in the presence of a miracle. You can't say, oh, that was a bunch of hogwash. No, it's a miracle. And they agree they can't refuse what? What's the next? What's the sealing agent? Baptism, baby. This conversion at the end is important in the way it keeps baptism in its proper role. We're still doing it today. And the arrival of the Holy Spirit gave proof of their acceptance by God. What's the definition of a Christian? You can sum it up. Someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's it. 
Then they agreed that since these Gentiles were believers, we got to find some water, guys. We got to get some baptisms going. Water baptism pictures what? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit had arrived, then water baptism was just the next natural step. But we see that baptism didn't make them believers, did it? It Here it is. It was the recognition. This is what I, this is just, this is what I took away from it. It was the recognition of their faith. The recognition of their faith. But Peter ordered it. So it was important. And it was the means by which Cornelius joined into the church and into the fellowship of believers. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, just believer. Recognition of your faith. Interesting. I wanted to go back to these, these reflection questions. Just how far am I willing to believe the Holy Spirit will go to direct my life and my heart? I mean, if you need to, if you need to read Scripture to figure that out, please do. But if you're a believer, then you know. He will go, he will jump an entire... My dad used to say, Ben, you give him an inch. You come, to, you come towards him an inch, and he'll jump an entire universe. Hind's feet on high places. Have you ever heard that, that book? It's Hind's feet on high places, meaning that when you're in the valley, he has Hind's feet. Hoofs like a goat that can travel over rocks that you have never been able to travel. He will get to you. He will do anything. Number two, do I associate discipleship and growth in my Christian walk with a gathering inside a church once a week? <laughs> that's a that's a toe stomper. But it's it's the American gospel, guys. I mean, we struggle with this. Yeah, you, you know, we wrap it all into one big bundle. Just come to church. Just come to church. Just come to church. Guys, it's it's just a celebration. It's just one ecclesia. It's just one moment in all of the other moments of the week where discipleship and growth can happen. Don't turn it into a system. Number three, are these things in my life that I consider, are there things in my life that I consider unclean that God says is not? Are there things that you religiously have abstained from because deep down I, I'm talking to myself, are there some things that I think that I'm abstaining from that God says is totally fine? I'm not talking about your typical drugs, alcohol, and all that stuff. I'm talking about a religious act that you're still holding on to that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Ash Wednesday, I'm not going to sit there and tell you all about where that came from and what that's all about, but I'm here to say Jesus did that. You can almost answer any question, by the way, with that. Jesus already did it. Number four, do I recognize my faith. I really felt led to write that one. I don't know. I mean, you can throw away the other one, but that one right there. I mean, I'm sure you guys 
at first glance, probably say yes. But what did happen? What just happened here? Cornelius recognized his faith. You know what I equate it to? I equate it to some. I, I equate it to uh, eating those. Uh, remember those candies that fizz? Pop rocks. That's it. You you down a big bag of pop rocks. What happens? You go, whoa, whoa, whoa! What's going on in there? It's there's some explosions going on. That's a feeling that's very close to what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is it fantastic and and emotional? Sometimes, but oftentimes not. Oftentimes it's quiet. And oftentimes it's very meaningful to you. Do, but do you recognize that there's a component in you that has the functionality and the stamina to believe in a promise that God made that He's going to do it? Do you actually believe that? If you do, welcome to faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this crowd of people, these people that are hungry after you. Again, didn't come from us. It came from you. So the bonds of peace bind us together here today, just as it did in the first church. We are of one mind, one spirit. I got what they got. It's you. And we're family members, brothers, sisters. Oh, man, in such a more powerful way. Father in heaven, I thank, right, I thank you for what you're, you've done already, and I thank you for what you're going to do as we dwell on these questions, as we dwell on what you've given us. Lord, I, I thank you for the opportunity to speak. I don't take that lightly. Take whatever I said incorrectly and then incorrectly and make it yours. Make it yours for these people. Thank you for these wonderful people. We see them to, uh, next week as we tackle chapter 11, and we continue on this amazing journey through the book of Acts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer. I hope you found the content enriching and useful in your daily walk with Christ. Remember, the journey of faith does not end here. Keep diving into the Word, seeking wisdom from the Holy Spirit, and allowing its truth to shape your life. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Your feedback helps us improve and reach more listeners just like you. Until next time, may the peace of God be with you, guiding you through your week until we meet together again.